This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. The podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Well, here we are again, and I have to tell you, last week I was absolutely blown away, but not entirely surprised at the overwhelming reaction that I got to my interview, the debut of this podcast, with Anthony Ramundi. If you didn't get to hear it, Anthony Ramundi is not only the author of the book, When the Bullet Hits the Bone, but he was a mobster. And uh, unlike a lot of other people that are in that world, he didn't become a cooperating witness, and he is still alive to tell a lot of these stories. So it makes him pretty unique. Uh, Most of the people that you hear telling stories about their days of uh, uh, corruption, payoffs, bribes, uh, the kind of things that organized crime traditionally does— They're people that have chosen to make a deal with the government. There are a few exceptions. We'll talk about them in just a bit. But uh, we barely scratched the surface with Anthony last week. And it just so happens that in the last week or so, there's been an explosion of interest in all things mafia-related, in part because of an ABC special, a primetime ABC special called The Last Gangster that aired last week. So I I thought it might be interesting to have Anthony back back to uh, get him to comment on a few other stories in his book and get get his take on that particular special, which a lot of people are still talking about and asking questions about. So I'm very pleased to welcome back uh, the author of When the Bullet Hits the Bone, Anthony Luciano Ramundi. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me again. My pleasure. My pleasure, Frank. So let's begin with that ABC special. It was all about, if people didn't see it, it was all about Sammy the Bull Gravano. It was mostly told from his perspective. There was a lot of archival interview footage of his previous interview with Diane Sawyer, but uh, there there were all other people that were featured in the documentary as well. John Gotti Jr., certainly no fan of Sammy Gravano. He was featured in a number of other folks as well. I know you had an opportunity to watch it at our request. We asked that you review it. What was your take on the special? I think a lot of it was garbage, if you want to know the truth. Because the way they were talking about him, I mean, you know, when somebody's alive, you can say so much. But when somebody's dead, then you can open up your mouth and say whatever you want. I think they lied about, I think they lied about a lot of stuff over there. Not especially with Sammy, because Sammy was no angel either, from what I understand. Yeah. Uh, well, what specifically do you think was inaccurate that they included? Well, the way they were talking, the way they were saying that he wasn't running the family right, uh, that he was flashing. This is what he was. John was a gangster. John, he wasn't we're talking a wise guy. John Gotti. John Gotti. John was a gangster. He was a real, real gangster. He stood up for what he'd done. In other words, whatever he'd done, he stood up and said, yeah, I did it, and that's the end of it. 
All right, everybody says you have to go through channels. First, you got to sit down with this one, that one. You got to get approval. He just went and did what he wanted to do. In other words, basically, he did a lot of things that other guys wouldn't do or other guys were afraid to do because they were afraid they would be in trouble or something would happen to them or whatever. And John just went out and did it, and he took over. And, and, and in your view, the documentary didn't depict that. Although I did get the sense that, um, that John Gotti Jr., who is a friend of mine, uh, and his, do- his uh, John Gotti Sr.'s daughter, Victoria, has agreed yeah. to appear on this podcast as well. I did get the sense that John uh, Jr. did do his best to try and offer an alternative to the narrative. But you thought that it was still a very skewed perspective that they offered. Yeah, I would say so. Well, John, you got to remember, John's son, John Jr., he's going to defend his father, which is which is admirable if anybody would defend their father. But, I mean, he knew exactly what his father was. Everybody knew. Even his, his daughter knew what the father was. Like she had said in an interview a long time ago that her father was the last of the Mohicans. And that was, I'm going back, it's got to be, what, 20 years, something like that? Uh, I think which 30. Meant, I know that interview. It was right after he was convicted was 30, in 92. Yeah. Yeah, 92, 2002, yeah, yeah, 30 years. She was saying, basically, he's the last of the Mohicans, basically like the old-time gangsters, well, like my Uncle Lucky was, like Maya Lansky was. They went out, they did what they wanted to do, they ran their family, they all made money, and they didn't hide. They didn't hide, like, you know, let's go in the dark alley in the corner or wherever and talk and whatever. They just were right up front. They were right up front with what they said and what they done. And they didn't really give a damn who saw it and who didn't. This is what they did. There was a burst in mob, modern mob coverage a couple of years ago when the head of the Gambino crime family, Frank Calley, was murdered outside of his home on Staten Island. But aside from that, so many of the conversations that we have about uh, the mafia tend to be about yesterday, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, even before that, and or about uh, cinematic depictions of life in organized crime. Based on what you you know, and based on the folks that you're in touch with today, what is the status of Italian organized crime these days? Is it still powerful? Is it still around? And if it is, why do we hear about it so rarely? First, in my opinion, I think that the Russians, the Chinese, the, uh, the what do you call them, the Yakuza with the, with the Japanese, the tribes, I think they're more powerful than the Italians right now. I'll be perfectly honest with you, because... One thing, and I'm going to be honest with you, I mean, you know, if you think about it, the Italians do not stick together. They, we, they really don't. Because who's the first ones to rat on use your own guys? Where the Russians, they stick together. The Yakuza with the Japanese, they stick together. The triads, they stick together. Even these other groups from, uh, let's say, like from Haiti or wherever they're coming from, or like these uh, other gang staff. They stick together. The Italians, if you ever notice, the Italians do not stick together. If there's a problem outside, for argument's sake, like let's say like you get Black Lives Matter, okay? The black people stick together and they will protest, okay? The Italians won't. Like like with Columbus Day, when they were saying that they wanted to make Columbus Day uh, Indigenous People's Day or they wanted to add something else into uh, Columbus Day, nobody put up a stink. They all kept their mouth quiet. But if it would have been a different... Uh, like with the Russians or something, they all make their voice heard and they want what they want. The Italians do not stick together. Look at the neighborhoods. They run out of the neighbor. They run out of their neighborhoods like uh, like when you turn on the light, the cockroaches start to scatter. Let's put it that way. If one, uh, how can I put it? 
if somebody sells their house in the neighborhood uh, and they see there's people moving in, they all decide they're going to put their house up and they run out of the neighborhood. They just don't stick together. That's what it is. I once asked Oscar Goodman, who prior to being the mayor of Las Vegas had an illustrious career as a criminal defense attorney, and he represented a lot of people in organized crime. I once asked him what he thought the most realistic mob movie was, and uh, he thought, and I, I think maybe it was because they let him play himself in the film, he said that he thought it was the film Casino. I don't know how much of a moviegoer you are, Anthony, but out of all the mob movies you've seen over the years, what did you find offered the most realistic window into mob life? Well, I would tell you right now, in my opinion, there was three movies. All right, The Godfather definitely, because The Godfather was about Joe Bonanno. Uh, that's exactly what the movie was about. It wasn't about some other family. It was about Joe Bonanno when he made the move to Las Vegas. I'm not Las Vegas, when he went to Reno, Nevada and everything. Then there was a movie years ago. Uh, you probably would remember with Peter Boyle called Crazy Joe, where he played Joe Gallo. Now, the only thing that was, uh, I would say that I didn't like with that movie is they got somebody like Peter Boyle to play him because Joe Gallo wasn't that big in stature, physical stature. But it got basically down to exactly the way life was back then. Casino, I would say it was pretty accurate because I remember I used to go to Las Vegas a lot, a lot and I was good friends with Benny Binion also, which I have. Uh, stories about him that I'm putting in book two. When I was with Benny Binion and Maya Lansky, we were down in uh, Las Vegas, and there's a story about a guy named Vegas Bill. They were about the three best ones, I would say, that are the closest ones to it. Mm. You mentioned Joe Bonanno. One of the things, yeah. you know, I covered the four trials of John Gotti Jr., and John Gotti Jr.'s defense in those four trials was that he had withdrawn from organized crime. And the prosecutors, their whole refrain throughout all four of those trials was, you can't leave organized crime unless you cooperate, unless you become a rat. And now Joe Bonanno legitimately did leave the world of organized crime. He retired to Florida and, and ne sort of never to be heard from again, at least as far as the underworld goes. Is that right? No, Joe went to, uh, he went to Nevada. Oh, Nevada. Went, you know, Nevada. Me, I have all these New Yorkers in my head that are moving to Florida. Yeah, I know. No, Joe had a, Joe had a lot, uh, no, Joe still had a lot of interest going in Nevada. He had his own, uh, he had a crew down in Nevada, in Reno, Nevada, that he had set up. He was still doing business. He didn't. Do, he didn't go with the retirement that easy. He left New York. All right. Now I remember my father and my uncles told me because they were good friends with him. They said he left New York because he was tired of the nonsense and the bullshit. Let's put it that way. What's going on? So he mm -hmm. just rather to have a war. And he said, if it would have been Joe, wouldn't Joe like my father used to tell me? Joe wouldn't give a damn about going to war. He didn't care one way or the other. He would go to war at the drop of a hat. All right. You pushed him. But he says, you know what's the easiest way to do this? He left. Went down to Nevada, he set up shop down there. They still kept the family up here with the name Bonanno, but what everybody doesn't know, which I know, and I know because I got this from my father and my uncles, they still kicked, they sent an end to him down in Nevada. Mm. But the family still was his name. They sent an end to him up until he died. So he didn't do this whole uh, abandonment of La Cosa Nostra like some people, including me, were under the impression that he did. In New York, he did. He got away from New York because of the way he was getting up here. But he opened up his own, uh, like I said, he had another crew that he had down in Nevada with the gambling and everything he had down there. 
that he took care of. And he just walked out of New York and said, you want the family? Yeah, you keep it. It's got to have my, keep my name. I got to get an end. And he got an end. Every week they sent an end to him. Nobody in your line of nonsense. Every week they sent an end to him. You alluded to the uh, you alluded to the movie Crazy Joe, all about uh, Joe Gallo. Yeah. Uh, Joe Gallo's uh, former son-in-law is a friend of mine. We're still uh, very much in touch. But his death has always been the source of a lot of mystery. He was gunned down in Little Italy at, uh, while having dinner with uh, Jerry Orbach, who had played yeah. a version of him in the movie The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. What's right. your take on what really happened with the assassination of, of Joe Gallo. Uh, what, do you, what do you know about it? Well, I'm going to be doing a book on my father. And that'll be if the book two of my of When the Bullet Hits the Bone, The Dead Don't Walk. I'm doing a book on my father. In that, I can tell you, and I know this for a fact, who one of the shooters was, because I spoke to him and he told me on his deathbed who was the, who was the original shooter. There was one guy who was outside who shot Joe Gallo. All right, the guy outside is the one who killed him, not the guy that was, quote unquote, inside like you've seen in the movie. Uh, was the Irishman? The Irishman. I was just going to ask you about that. Two guns in the two guns, one gun in each hand, guns blazing. No, that wasn't the way it was. First of all, that guy in the Irishman that was a lot of bullshit. That was a lot of nonsense. That wasn't even true. Now, what I'm saying about the man on his deathbed told me he was on his deathbed. It was my father who told me what it was. But that I could talk, I'll talk about that a little later once I get uh, the book on my father out. Mm, yeah, and I want to have it in there also. But I'll give you an exclusive on it just before the book comes out. Wonderful. We'll uh, look forward to that. W what's the timetable for your next book uh, coming out? The Dead Don't Walk. Uh, hopefully, I'm looking at anywhere because being I'm doing quite a few things are between June and say November. I'm hoping anywhere in between there will be out. June of this year to November of this year, the book will be out. Uh, that's certainly going to be uh, really interesting. Obviously, the the uh, so much of Crazy Joe Gallo's career in mafiadom was uh, defined by this feud that he had with Joe Colombo. Joe Colombo uh, was described by a lot of people as sort of the dapper Don before John Gotti was. He was uh, very flashy, led the uh, Italian-American Civil Rights League, uh, and uh, organized a lot of legitimate people uh, as mm -hmm. to be a part of it. What was your take on what happened with, with Joe Colombo and his shooting? Well, originally, the feud started with Joe Profaci before mm. Joe Colombo got involved. And what happened after Profaci died and then Joe Colombo got their family, then it just continued on because Joe Colombo, according to the way the story goes on the street, that Joe Colombo wouldn't acknowledge them either, that he was keeping uh, Joey Gallo and Larry and all them, you know, on a lower level, in other words. Now, as far as Joe Colombo's killing, or shooting, rather, let me put it that way, because he didn't get killed at that time. Sure. That's, uh, you could take it a six of one, half a dozen of the other. You could either turn around and say that it was Joe Gallo that had it done because of the feud that was going on, or the other families got together and they didn't like the idea that he was bringing so much attention onto the Italians. And, uh, you know, that they were always under scrutiny, especially with the FBI, that they turned around and they said, he's got to go. It's either, one or, it's either one or the other. Like I said, six or one, half a dozen or the other. 
in in terms of your own career in your book you write a little bit about your arrest in 1977 uh, by yeah. FBI special agent Walter Smith what oh, you- oh that's <laughs> excuse my language <laughs> uh, tell me about uh, that tell uh, me about Walter Smith and your arrest in 77 I was out. I was at the. I was down on Third Avenue, Cow Street, diplomat, uh, where we used to hang out on Cow Street and Third Avenue, Brooklyn. And I had a pager, and on the pager, I would have a number. It was called. It was O seven seven three four. If you turned it upside down, it said hello. Now I had a list, you know, and then like at the end of it, you would put a number, number one, number three, number six. So when I seen number one, I knew it was my father. So I went to a payphone and I called him. He says, the FBI was here. The FBI was looking for you. I said, okay. I said, what's the matter? He says, they got in the restaurant for everything. I said, okay. I said, I know what to do. So I got my cousin Mac. My cousin Mac goes, what's the matter? He says, the feds are looking for me. So they got in the restaurant for me. He says, take off. I said, that's what I'm going to do. So I disappeared. I got in touch with a cousin of mine, my cousin Philip. And he lived on, his name is Philip Priscilla. He lived on uh, East 10th Street between Avenue H and the Dead End. He said, what's going on? I said, Philly, the feds are looking for me. I said, I don't know why. I said, but we're getting in touch with Frank Lopez. He's going to find out because Frank Lopez was our attorney. I said, he'll find out. I said, I have no idea why. And I, I introduced, at that time, I had no idea why. He said, all right. He goes, come on, we'll stay at my house. Now, there was a car service on Avenue H between Coney Island Avenue and East 10th Street called Three Hours Car Service, which we had a piece of. And it was a Rabbi Norman Rader that had it with his son, Michael. So me and my cousin Philip had a piece of it. We had Shylock business up there and everything. So he says, all right, he goes, look, you know, he goes, hang out. He goes, stash in your, uh, you know, he goes, stay in my apartment tonight. He had a little three-room apartment. You're going to love this one. A little three-room apartment. I said, okay. So I go into the apartment building. I'm in the apartment up there. And he goes, let me go see what I can find out. He goes out. And he's up around the area, and there was a, a diner around the corner of Avenue H, the car service and all the other businesses. There's a grocery store, haircutting and everything. He comes back maybe half hour later. He goes, the feds are all over Avenue H looking for you. Mm. I says, he says, what would you do? I says, I have no idea what I did. I says, I don't know. I says, I have no idea what they're looking for me for, what they want. With me. Don't know anything. He goes, you better stay. I said, yeah, no kidding. I'm staying here. Anyway, a friend of ours... Uh, a friend of ours was in the neighborhood. He lives up in the neighborhood over there. He goes into my cousin's, and he, says, he sees my cousin, there and he sees me, and he goes, what's going on, Anthony? I said, what? The reason why I'm not saying his name, because he's still around and he's married. And sure. He still lives in the Understood. Uh, but he was a very dear friend of mine. And he says, Anthony, he goes, the feds were at my house looking for you. I said, why the fuck would they be at your house? He goes, they're looking for you all over the neighborhood. He goes out. We'll call. Let's call him Tommy. We'll give him a name. Let's call him Tommy. So Tommy walks out of the building. He must have been out maybe twenty seconds. He comes in, comes running back in. What's the matter? He goes. The feds are on the block. They're coming in the block over here. I thought. Oh, he says. I said, Philly. They're going to come here looking for me. So where the fuck am I going to hide over here? He had a three room apartment. Let me explain how his room apartment was. You walked in. You had a big living room. You had an eating kitchen and a bedroom. Where the hell am I going to hide? Right. There's no, there's no way I'm going to hide. I'm going to go under the bed. They're going to look under the bed. So my cousin had this Castro convertible, <laughs> and he opens it up, and he had a big back that was up against the wall. He says, can we fit you in there? 
Because I'll try anything to see what the hell is going on. I get into Castro, and they took out one of the one of the uh, the mattress that was in there, and they close it. I said it's not bad. They put the cushions on top of it, so I'm in there. My cousin Phil Boston here banging on the door. I mean, banging on the door. FBI and all the other nonsense. The FBI opened the door. They, my cousin opens the door. He lets them in. Look, I do for you, you Philip Priscilla. Yeah, we're looking for your cousin, Anthony Luciano, every Monday. My cousin says, good, yeah, look. He goes, where, where we got him in here? He goes, the three-room apartment. Where have I got him? They went in. They looked all around the apartment. Now, my cousin Philip, I want you to understand, weighed uh, 290 pounds. And my friend that was in there, he weighed about 175 pounds. So what did both of them decide to do? They decide to sit on the couch. Now, I got my cousin is 295 pounds, so he decides to sit on the couch up near my head. Now he's smothering me. My other friend, he sits down. It wasn't bad. Now, I'm dying in there for air. I don't know how I didn't make noise in there or anything. The feds are talking to him. Well, if you see him, you tell him to get in touch with us. He's wanted. We have arrest warrants for him. He's on the 10 most wanted list. And I'm listening to this. I'm saying, I'm on the 10 most wanted list. And what the freak did I do? I'm on the 10 most wanted list. What are you kidding me? P.S. They leave. My cousin takes the cushions off. I come up gasping for I said, if you didn't, get, if they didn't leave soon, I was going to get up and say I turned myself in. <laughs> I couldn't freaking breathe. With that, my cousin Philip goes outside and he comes in with my cousin Mac. My cousin Mac came to the neighborhood. I said, what's going on? He says, listen, the FBI's got an arrest warrant for you. He said they picked up Uncle Frankie. They picked up uh, Barbara, his girlfriend. I says, for what? He goes, you know of a uh, there was a. Uh, a travel agency on Court Street. He goes, a woman, Maria La Papa. I says, yeah, I know who she is. I says, Uncle Frankie's got money with her. I gave him the money to give her. And I says, like, she took care of two vacations for me. Why? He goes, she was wearing a wire all the while. I said, what's that got to do with me? He says, well, if you didn't speak to her about it, I said, I did not speak to her about no business, no nothing. Anytime we went in there and talked, I was talking about... Can you get me tickets for a vacation here, there, whatever? She used to give them to me at a discount. You know, like I would pay like cost or whatever for the tickets. I said, but Uncle Frankie's the one. I gave him the money, and he Shylocked it to her, and he's making the pickup. I said, I don't even discuss it with her. He goes, well, you're all over the tapes. I said, what do you mean the tapes? He goes, the whole neighborhood. I said, what do you mean the whole neighborhood? He goes, she took Shylock money from like seven different Shylocks. And every time one of the Shylocks came there on the tape, from what Frank Lopez found out, these guys are mentioning my name. I got nothing to do with these guys. He said, they're mentioning your name. That's okay. Now what? He goes, tomorrow, turn yourself in to Federal Plaza. That's okay. Stood at my cousin Phillips that night. Next day, get up in the morning. He drives me down, and my friend drives me down. They drive me down to uh, to Federal Plaza. Took off all my jewelry, left it at my cousin Phillips. He was bringing it to my father. I walk into Federal Plaza. And I'm walking in. And downstairs you have these posters. And there's my picture on a poster. that I'm wanted. And I'm looking. I'm saying, what the freak did I do? I'm wanted. I'm walking. Now, you got to remember, I walk into Federal Plaza. I'm not hiding. There's my picture on the poster. And these people walking past me back and forth. Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? Okay, fine. I walk up to the woman. I say, excuse me. I says, my name is Anthony Salto-Luciano Raimondi. She says, yes, can I help you? I says, yes, Special Agent Walter Smith was looking for me. They were at my house yesterday. Yeah, go upstairs. I think it was the third or fourth floor I went up to. So I'm looking at my cousin. I'm looking at my friend. He says, 
What's going on? I said, is this a joke? I said, they were walking for me. I said, I'm walking in. They're not bothering me. We get in the <laughs> elevator. I go upstairs. Now, here's the best part. I go upstairs, get off the elevator, and my friend, like I said, we'll call him Tommy. He says, hey, look, over here. There's my picture on the wall with a $50,000 reward. I'm saying, I don't know. So I walk over to the woman, the receptionist at the desk, and behind it, there's all posters of guys who are wanted, and there's my picture. Excuse me. He says, yes, can I help you? Yes, my name. gave me my name again. I'm looking for Special Agent Walter Smith, so on and so forth. She says, all right. She goes, he'll be out with you in a little while. It's okay. So now I'm looking at my cousin. I says, is this a joke? I said, because if this guy don't come out, so I'm getting that. Now I'm leaning up against the wall next to my poster. Now, <laughs> you can't miss the poster. And there's men, there's women. You see them with the FBI badges on. Good morning. I'm going, good morning. How you doing? Okay, fine. Good morning. Good morning. And I'm saying it's got to be a joke. It has to be a joke because they're not even bothering me. So I says, listen, you know what, Philip? I says, in about two minutes, I says, this guy don't come out. I'm getting back in the elevator. We're getting the hell out of here. This has got to be a joke that somebody played a bad joke on me. All of a sudden, we see, must have been oh, about maybe 40, 50 feet away from us. The door opens up. And these FBI agents come running out. I mean, like six, seven of them come running out. So I go, wow, who are they? That's the last, the only word that got out of my mouth. Who are they? Boom, they hit me. They throw me on the floor. We got you. We got you. They're handcuffing me. And you got what? Right, you I walked said, you in. Got me. You got what? I said, turn said, we got you. No, I said, so I look at my cousin. He said, don't worry about it. I said, okay. They get me. They bring me downstairs. They're trying to talk to me. wouldn't talk to them. I spend the night. They held me in MCC for the night. Next day, I go before the judge. I go before the magistrate. That Frank Lopez is there. My cousin's there. A lot of guys, a couple of guys are there. And this special agent, this son of a bitch, Walter Smith, comes walking in. He goes, Your Honor, by our extensive resources and our exhaust, <laughs> and un- unexhausted manpower and blah, 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 we captured him. So I turned around and said, you captured what? Now the gavel goes down. Be quiet. Okay. We captured Mr. Raymondi. We captured Pluto. We captured Anthony Segoff. The judge said, how many guys did you capture? He goes, well, that's all his nicknames. <laughs> I'm, now I'm fuming. I'm looking at this guy. I want to get this guy. I wanted, I wanted to rip his heart out. We caught him. Bail. No bail. We want him under the no bail act. So the judge, the magistrate goes, no bail. Okay. Now, Frank Lopez, he comes up. He says, I just want to ask Special Agent Walter Smith one question. So the judge, so the judge goes, right, go ahead. He goes, did you capture him or did he hear that when you were looking for him, he came and turned himself in because he was out of town? Special Agent Walter Smith didn't answer him. So Frank Lopez tells him again. He goes, let me ask you one more time. Maybe you didn't hear me the first time. Did Mr. Raimondi turn himself in when he heard that you were looking for him because he was out of town, or did you capture him? Again, he wouldn't answer. So now the judge says, Special Agent Smith, you have to answer. He wouldn't even answer what the judge told him to. So Frank says, I want bail, Your Honor. The judge granted me bail, million dollars bail. He said, one million dollars bail. Frank says, no problem. And who was there? There was Abraham Gritz because he was an old attorney of mine from my first case, very first case I had, and he also was a bail bondsman. He puts up a bond. My father puts up the deed to the house. Now, in the interim, I heard that when Special Agent Walter Smith came to my house, he started yelling and abusing my mother. 
Mm. My mother was a sick woman, and my father went to go after him. They almost arrested my father. My father would have killed him. But there were other people there. They stopped him. So I'm fuming when I looked at him. I said, all right. So I'm ready to walk out. I said, excuse me, Your Honor. He says, yes. I says, I just would like to, can I say something to Special Agent Walter Smith? He goes, what's the problem? I says, well, Your Honor, he came to my house yesterday. And he was abusing my mother, threatening that he was going to lock up my mother. My mother's a sick woman. And he didn't say nothing. I said, he threatens my mother, threatens to lock her up, call her a guinea, tell her, you guineas, you're all alike. And then starting there, and my father went to go after him, which I'm not going to hide, Your Honor. He went to go after him. I said, my father's right here. And my father looked my father, waved at the judge. I said, go, my father defended my mother. I said, this guy threatened to lock up my family. I said, he's got a problem with me. You come to me. I said, but I would like to say something. Can I say something to him? Judge tells, the judge wants to know. He says, choose your words carefully. He says, you can tell him what you want to tell him. It's okay. And I'm going to so say it the way I said it to him. I walked over to him, and I was standing. I had Frank Lopez by me and my cousin Mac. I says, can I tell you something? He says, yeah, what? I says, you dirty motherfucker. Just like that, I told myself, if I would have been in the house, I would have split your fucking skull wide open. I said, you ever abuse my mother again? The judge is banging the fucking gavel down. He said, get him out of here. Get him out, Mr. Lopez. Get your client out of there. I said, you ever bother my mother again? I said, I'll fight. I said, I'll rip your heart out with my fucking teeth. They had to drag me out of the courtroom. But the judge, he did not revoke the bail. He let me get the bail and get out of here. He knew this special agent, Walter Smith, was a son of a bitch. It only was. It was that he tried to when he went for the for the trial when they when I went on trial, he turns around. He's telling them how he captured me. And Frank Lopez got up again. Did he explain? He goes, "What do you mean you captured him?" He said, "The man turned himself in." He said, "Oh, did the second time you lying?" He told him. The jury heard that. The jury turned around. They started looking differently at uh, Walter Special Agent Walter Smith. But now I found out on the tape when you listen to the tapes. I'm on the tape talking to Marie LaPapa. I said, Marie, you know what? I'm going to go to Florida. Can you get me tickets to a good price? Yeah. Marie, a couple of us are going to go down to Vegas. It's all you hear me tell. She said, yeah, Andy, this is the price. Never discussed any business with her at all. Now, when you listen to the other tapes, the Lord, the Shylocks will go, she's bringing my name up to them. She's saying, well, you know, I spoke with Anthony Cigars, and I got money with him. And they, they'll turn, and they, the guys will turn around and say, well, we took with Anthony also. We want to see what he's doing. He told us we can do this. I never told you guys you could do anything. You guys are with separate crews and separate families. They're throwing all the blame on me. That's how I got arrested. It, you know, usually when there's these cases, there's usually uh, a, a rap. There's usually a cooperator that's the linchpin of the government's yeah. case. In, in your case, uh, the, you know, there may have been rats involved, and I'm curious to know if that was the case. But in your case, there was someone named Maria LaPapa who had secretly right. recorded conversations. What happened? Yeah. Who, who was Maria LaPapa, and how did these surreptitious recordings uh, take place and factor into your arrest and your trial? Uh, Maria LaPapa, she owned a uh, travel agency on Court Street. I don't remember what the name of it was, but people who are from the neighborhood will remember back in the 70s, she had a travel agency. My Uncle Frank was a Shylock. And he had business on Court Street and he Shylocked the money. So he had come to me and he had told me, and so I got this woman, Maria LaPapa, and he told me I think she needed, she need, he needed an extra $2,000 he was short that week. So he said, all right, here's 2000 Go do what you got to do. He says, all right. 
So he brought me around to me. He says, hi. He introduced me to me. He says, Maria, this is my nephew, Anthony. How are you doing? It's a pleasure. I said, oh, you got a travel agency. Nice. I never spoke to her about any business. And I and what I used to do, like I said before, I would get tickets from her at cost. Like we would go, like a bunch of us would go down to Vegas. I would get the tickets at cost. I was going to go to Florida. Wherever I was going to travel off, like we were going to go on a cruise, she would get us the tickets for cost. Now, she never discussed business with me. She never discussed interest with me, uh, never discussed borrowing money from me. But she had gotten herself into a big jam up because she borrowed from seven other Shylocks in the neighborhood. And all these other guys in the neighborhood put my name in their mouth also. In other words, when she would turn around, they would give her a hard time. She said, well, I've got money with Anthony Cigars. And he says, uh, he says, you know, it's all right if I'm a little late. And then they're putting it in there saying, well, Anthony's the one who tells us to come to you and get the money from you no matter what we got to do. I didn't even know half of these guys. Don't even know them. And they were with other crews. Like one guy was with Punchy. Another guy was with Frankie Martin, which they call him Frankie Baranka. They were with all different crews, these guys. But I knew them. You know, like in passing, let's put it that way. But now they're using my name all over Court Street because all over Court Street, everybody knew me. And they're using my name. Stevie Borriello knew me. His brother Bobby, who passed away, he knew sure. me. I mean, I was known all over the area over there. And so these guys are talking about me. Well, Anthony runs our Shylock business. You know, we're all, we all are in the same business. We're all Shylocks, but Anthony's the head of our business. He tells us what to do. I don't even know half of these guys. How do I tell them what to do? They were doing this to try to squeeze her because she wasn't paying them the juice. She wasn't paying them the interest on the money. So what she done, she ran to the feds. Well, see, Maria LaPapa, how she got into the Shylocks, what we found out later on, she had a bad gambling problem. Mm. So whatever she was making at the travel agency, she was spending that plus what she was taking from the Shylocks. Meanwhile, I'm sitting down. I'm going there, you know, making arrangements for her to get, like, tickets to go to a uh, to wherever, like with my girlfriend at the time. And meanwhile, my name's all over the tapes. And I'm the I'm the head of the Shylock ring down there. I didn't even, I said, to my, I said in court, I didn't even know they had a Shylock ring on Court Street. The jury started laughing. <laughs> but I still got convicted. Uh, so what happened? Uh, what happened? Did you, how much time did you end up doing in prison? Well, what happened with that case, I was on a six-count indictment, and they, kind of, and they only convicted me on one count. So I made a score. Now, at that time, when I got picked up, I was under 24, let me see, the crime was committed, I was under 24, and I got conv- I got convicted on, it was the um, Youthful Offenders Act is what the feds picked me up on. So the Youthful Offenders Act meant that no matter what they gave me, in other words, like whatever my crime is, I couldn't get no more than seven years for the loan shock or whatever, like, the, like each count carried 20 years maximum exposure. So they couldn't give me no more than seven because I was under the Youthful Offenders, it's called the Youthful Offenders Act. So a judge in here turned around and he sentenced me to five years in prison. I said, okay. Now, Frank Lopez says, well, Your Honor, he says, I think we should, you know, uh, what's the word? Like, what do you call it? Like when you, when you uh, change the sentence around, there's a word. I can't remember what well, the word is. Suspended sentence? No, like, like you're going to change, uh, modify it. Uh-huh, says, got it. says modify it. Okay, modify it. He says, Mr. Raimondi is under the Youthful Offenders Act. He says, that's what he was picked up on. He says, he committed no violence. He's not on any tapes. So the judge near is looking at him. It's Judge Edward Arnia. So the judge modified his uh, sentence to, he says, I did a probation. 
he gave me five years probation. So I look, I says, had to score. I says, all right, I, says, I can live with that. Plus also a friend of mine who came in that I was involved with when I was in the military, uh, Mr. C, who came in, which I could tell you, which was Gordon Liddy at the time. Mm. He came in and spoke to the judge and the judge turned around. The judge didn't even know who he was when he walked into the court. That's the funny part about he, it. He didn't know who G. Gordon Liddy was. No, he didn't know who G. Gordon Everybody else knew. The DA knew, the prosecuting attorneys, the the guards, you know, the uh, the correction officers knew. They went in and they spoke with the judge also, and they came out, and Frank Lopez comes out with him, and the judge says to me, how would you like five years probation? <laughs> Are you kidding me? How would I learn? Yeah, where do I sign? Gave me five years probation. Uh, that... Gave me five years probation, and I had a, and I, and I had, and the reason why I got the five years probation, yes, what Frank Lopez says, but I think most of it was because of uh, what Gordon Lydia told him. Interesting. What Gordon told him. And then I had to take off Gordon after that. I had to take off Gordon. Had something he wanted, a mission he wanted us to do, me get my guys together that were down in Florida. Uh, that is, uh, that's wild. But then you did subsequently go to prison after that, though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I got violated, yeah. And I got a new conviction, yeah. Uh, uh, that was... Last story I want you to tell before we uh, before we run out of time, and then I do hope you'll come back in advance of yeah. your uh, your second book because there's a a, a, lo- a lifetime worth of stories that uh, that I think the audience would love hearing from mm-hmm. from you about. Uh, 1981 Labor Day. You yeah. had an interesting interaction with one of the leading oh. members of the Gambino family and with uh, John Sonny Franzese. John Sonny Franzese recently passed away, and of yes. course. His son Michael is one of the people featured in that uh, documentary, The Last yeah, Gangster. Right. Tell me, tell us what happened 1981 Labor Day weekend. No, that's when I got arrested. I got arrested in 1981 on the Labor Day weekend. But what happened, there was a place up in uh, Brooklyn in the, George, in the Georgetown area called the Georgetown Inn. And I always used to go up there every weekend. I had a standing table up there. And Sonny Francis would come up there, and my old pal Carmine Lombardoso used to come up there. I got some nice stories about him in book two. You're going to enjoy that, uh, what we did in Manhattan with the clubs. Anyway, there was a, there was a, a business going on up there. You know, everybody was Sherlock, and there was a, uh, a bartender, his name was George Ferrangi. Now, my Uncle Tony Zarika was home. He was a Sherlock, and he was a bookmaker. So I'm there sitting there with my girlfriend. He comes in with his new wife, Carol, because he was married to my mother's sister. She had passed away. This is like over a year and a half later. So I'm sitting there, and he says, what's doing? I said, all right. I said, come on, let's all sit down. We're all together, and we're having dinner. We're ordering and everything. He goes, I got to go see George. I got to speak to George. I said, all right. He goes over, and he speaks to George. <clears throat> He's talking to him. The food comes, and I'm trying to call him, and I'm raving my hand. He looks, and I'm tapping on my wrist. Come on, you know, time's going over here. Let's eat. Food's getting cold, and then, you know, we're going to enjoy ourselves after that. We're going to go out to the other clubs and stuff. So he's talking to George. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, he comes back and says, everything all right? He says, yeah, he says, I just had a little problem with him with the Shylock business. I said, all right. He says, yeah, he's making the payments. Don't worry. I said, okay. That's it. So everything goes. We go out that night. We had our dinner. had a nice time. A couple months later, I'm sitting in Desiree Car Service. Now, right next door, there was the club Desiree. And then next door to that, we had a car service. Now, you could walk into the car service, and then from the car service, you went into a back room, and then that back room went into the Desiree Club, and you could walk out through the club on the other side. So there was me and Josie, 
and we're sitting there, and I got the, the uh, I'm sitting behind the desk, and I got piles of cash on the desk that were counting. Josie's sitting next to me, and underneath the desk, I had a compartment. I used to have a sawed-off shotgun there, and then in the drawer next to me, the cabinet drawer that I had next to me, Josie was sitting, I used to keep a 45, and we kept it open. Now, we got the club going on, and we're sitting there, and we're counting the money, Two guys come walking in. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. It was Saturday morning. I'll never forget it. <clears throat> they come walking in, and they pull out guns. So I looked at Joey, looked at me. I put my hands up. I says, there's the money. Take it. One of them turns around. He says, we're not here for the money. Now I look at Joey. He looks like, oh, fuck. I said, it's a hit. I said, either somebody to whack me or to whack you, and they got to take the both of us because they're not going to leave no witnesses. I'm telling these guys, listen, let me, let, hey, say, pal, let's take it easy. Let's talk about it. What do you guys want? What's going on? As I'm talking to them, I'm putting my hands down. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm putting my hands down, and these guys ain't saying a word, like, keep your hands up or whatever. And I'm saying to myself, these got to be the two dumbest fucking guys I've ever seen. They're over here as a hit. So I get my hands down, and I'm talking. I say, yo, what's going on, man? I don't know what you want from me. I need, you know, there's the money, take it, and I'm grabbing the shotgun. Joe Z's going for the 45. Now, who do I see coming across the street? My probation officer, Ronald Ketchum. Oh, boy. I says, oh, fuck. I said, wonderful. I said, these guys are here to try to wacky the Joe or me, so they're going to have to take the two of us out. Here comes my probation officer. I'm saying to myself, quick, I'm saying, a gunfight's going to go on. This guy's going to get killed. I'm going to get blamed for it. I'm going to go away for murder. He walks in the door. One of the guys turns around. I have my hand on the shotgun. I'm taking it out. And he turns around, and they see, and they see the, uh, one of the guys goes, Oh, Mr. Ketchum, glad you're here. I just got to the I went, Oh, my God, what the fuck? And I slipped it back in the day. Joe Z lets the 45 go. I said, What the hell's going on? These were two FBI agents. These two morons <laughs> didn't have their badges out or anything. They were dressed in regular clothes. No suits, no nothing. Denim jackets, the jeans. I looked at him and so he goes, what's the matter with you? I said, oh, Christ. I said, thank God. He goes, what's the matter with you? Did the probation officer tell me? I said, these two guys come in. I'm telling the story. Now, I didn't tell him that we're going for a shotgun in a 45. But I said, I thought it was a hit. I, he says, they didn't identify. I said, no, they didn't identify himself. I says, get here. I said, you know what we got to mention? He says, here, take me. I says, got to put my hands. I said, okay, I'll go with you. Take me. And they put the handcuffs on me and took me out. And Joe got in touch with my cousin. And then we got in touch with Frank Lopez again had to come and get me. Uh, that, that is wild. That is one of the many they, amazing stories. Uh, they that, never identified themselves. They didn't have no badges out, no nothing, and they were dressed in plain clothes. You know, regular clothes. Not like suits or sportwear, nothing like that at all. That's one of the incredible stories that people can hear that makes you on the edge of your seat one minute and then laughing the next In the when the bullet hits the bone uh, by Anthony Ramundi. Anthony, it is always a treat to talk with you. I will look Pleasure, forward Frank. to our next interaction. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Frank. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star rating, whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, and tell a friend. Spread the word about The Racket Report. I'll see you on the radio.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.